We have Michael Vanderveen and we have David Heim. Uh, Michael Vanderveen, you may remember, presented some of the arguments, particularly the First Amendment argument. And, and David Heim drafted the brief on the First Amendment. I'm going to ask them hard questions, personal questions, about how they and their family and fellow lawyers reacted to their defense of the Constitution and their defense of Donald Trump. You'll hear it all on The Der Show. Today on The Der Show, we're fortunate to have two great lawyers, both of whom played a very important role in the historic acquittal of former President Donald Trump when he was uh, tried by the Senate uh, for impeachment. And uh, these are lawyers who basically focused on uh, the constitutional issues, particularly the First Amendment issues. And on the Dirt Show, I'm going to ask them the hard questions that you want to ask them. And so let me introduce uh, two, two great lawyers. Uh, first of all, let me introduce Michael Vander Veen. Michael Vanderveen. Uh, and uh, David Hyam, uh, Michael Vanderveen, you'll remember, actually presented uh, the First Amendment argument. And uh, uh, David uh, apparently helped draft and uh, conceptualize the argument. And so we'll hear about each of their roles. But before we turn to that and before we turn to any of my questions, I know you're both uh, eminent lawyers from Philadelphia. Uh, give us just a word of background about your uh, history as lawyers. Uh, Mike, first. Uh, I'm a criminal defense lawyer here in Philadelphia. I own a law firm uh, with eight lawyers, a staff of about 25. Grew up doing criminal defense work. First six years at 26 in California in Chicago. Uh, came here to Philadelphia 33 years ago and have been practicing uh, uh, here ever since. Criminal defense, personal injury, commercial litigation, anything that that requires litigation, uh, that's what we do. So you're a real trial lawyer, a courtroom lawyer. You're what in Britain we would call a barrister. Great. And David? Yeah. And uh, I have a similar practice as Mike. Uh, I'm a partner at uh, Paquetto & Lentz here in Philadelphia. Uh, I've been practicing at that firm for about 22 years. I went to uh, Rutgers in New Jersey. Uh, and uh, I have a focus on defamation lawsuits. I do a lot of internet defamation lawsuits, represent victims of internet defamation, um, and uh, I focus a lot on First Amendment issues in my firm. Hey, great. We should uh, we can talk about some other issues as well. As you know, on the Dirt Show, we talk a lot about uh, uh, the internet and free speech. I have a new book coming out. Uh, uh, called The Case Against the New Censorship, uh, Big Tech uh, Universities and Progressives. So maybe we'll talk about that at some future time. But today we want to talk about the trial in the Senate and the role uh, you played. Um, and so, Mike, can you first start out by telling us how you saw your role in the case? What was your particular unique function in the case? Uh, I, my role changed a little bit over time, uh, but my role was just to kind of uh, make sure that the case uh, uh, was put on and that it proceeded from start to finish, whether uh, it was uh, what it required in the back of a trial from uh, everything from equipment uh, to technology um, to putting together the team members and then trying to kind of divvy up uh, responsibilities in the various areas of law. I really wasn't, um, uh, you know, lead counselor or anything of that nature. That was for Mr. Castor and Mr. Schoen uh, together, I think. 
Um, but, uh, and then I, I kind of changed to some case presentation uh, in, in it as well. David and I really started out on this together. Um, uh, when, when we were hired, you know, uh, I just, I, I, I said, I'll take First Amendment and I contacted um, David's firm and David in particular because he's really uh, well known in First Amendment issues uh, and highly respected in the city for that. So I wanted to consult with him uh, and I called some other folks too that I know, but uh, David and I really sat down and first worked through a, a brief um, that needed, you know, 10 parts put together in about 30 hours. Yeah. Uh, and, and it um, was an excellent brief. Dave, uh, I, apparently you yeah. had some, quite a bit to do with that brief, right? Yeah. He, he's really the architect of the First Amendment portion of that brief. Other folks um, worked on uh, the due process. Uh, some worked on the, you know, Mr. Schoen worked on jurisdiction. Um, and so, it, you know, so parts were uh, divvied up. David's was clearly uh, First Amendment uh, put together, you know, um, in collaboration um, but took the, just a massive laboring war all through, you know, two late nights and, you know, without sleep kind yeah. of stuff. Uh, and um, right. we you know, know we know about that. David, a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, like I said before, I, I do a lot of defamation work uh, and representing plaintiffs, although sometimes I do defense work as well. But that obviously is a constitutionalized tort. The First Amendment <clears> plays a huge role in it. That's kind of my background in the First Amendment, although I've had other First mm -hmm. Amendment issues. Um, so, so, David, I'm going to ask you the question very directly. How did you feel when you saw a letter from 144 people who claim to be scholars and experts on the First Amendment accusing you of putting forward a legally frivolous argument that, if they were correct, could have resulted in your being disciplined by the bar and perhaps even disbarred because it's unethical to present a legally frivolous argument. What did you feel when you read that letter? Well, I learned about the letter on February 5th, which is a Friday. I had been engaged by Michael as a consultant to draft the brief, I think, Tuesday before. I had done the research. I had written the brief. I was very proud of what, what we came up with because when I read the house manager's brief, I was really shocked at some of the astounding legal arguments that they were making, particularly that the First Amendment doesn't apply at all. It's totally irrelevant to these impeachment proceedings in Congress. Uh, and they were, they were trying to treat President Trump as a civil servant, a, uh, suggesting that he had no First Amendment rights whatsoever. They could simply fire him. Those I knew, having read the, the brief, that were they were totally off base. And I had already written the brief explaining exactly how, and I was very confident in it. I then saw this letter, associate sent it to me, and I read the letter, and I became, I really became angry, to be honest with you. Several of the professors that signed that letter were my professors in law school at Rutgers. Right. Um, and I don't have a problem with professors uh, expressing their opinion about a legal case. Uh, and that is not what made me angry. But what made me angry was exactly what you pointed out, which was the language that they used to call it legally frivolous. Uh, that is a loaded term in the law for lawyers. And I knew what that meant. Uh, some of my uh, partners learned about the letter. 
and they brought it up and they were concerned, frankly. What about this? I think the letter was published also in the New York Times over the weekend. Yes. And I got articles being sent to me from colleagues. What are you doing if this is legally frivolous? And I, I never equivocated that I knew what I was doing was not legally frivolous. If anything right. was frivolous, to suggest that the impeachment proceedings shouldn't uh, include First Amendment analysis or that the president was like a civil servant and had no First Amendment yeah. rights, I might characterize as that you as know, As you know, that argument was made not only by the House manager's brief, it was made by the American Civil Liberties Union. The American Civil Liberties Union issued a formal statement. They had a vote. It was unanimous on the national board. I used to serve on the national board. I don't think I remember a single unanimous decision ever rendered by the national board of the ACLU when I was there. We were the most divisive, feisty, divided group ever. We never agreed about anything, but we always came down on the side of the First Amendment. But here you have a unanimous statement by the ACLU saying essentially the First Amendment doesn't apply to impeachment proceedings and that the president had no First Amendment right to deliver the speech he gave on January 6th. Now, you say you had some of your professors, some of my colleagues, Charles Freed, the former Solicitor General of the United States, uh, Larry Tribe, uh, the, the person who surprised me most was Floyd Abrams, who is essentially the dean of the First Amendment bar in many ways. I worked with him very closely on many, many First Amendment cases, including the Pentagon Papers case. I was the, a lawyer for Mike Burnett, the, the senator. The, the person and that surprised how, how me the he, most was the House manager, Raskin, because he was the author of their trial brief, which spent about three pages on it, but more importantly, he, he was the presenter of their, their argument or, 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 or a contrary position on the First Amendment. So uh, although our brief hit it pretty hard, what was really important, I think, was our um, presentation to the American people about what the First Amendment is, how it applies, and the steps that you have to go through in the analysis. So the, we really had two pieces working. We had the written piece, but then we had the the um, oral presentation and and it was right. it was to a different crowd uh, that 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 was written to um, uh, than than the the brief itself. So it was very interesting that the senators um, really needed something to grab onto uh, and have an understanding that their constituents needed to be able to understand uh, what what the First Amendment was and why it needed to apply, particularly uh, in the Senate chamber in that proceeding. Right. And you you basically had a jury of 11 or 12. Your job was to make sure that you held on to the 11 or 12 Republican senators who had voted no jurisdiction in the Senate. And uh, two of them were changed their votes uh, at the end. But your job was to hold on to that relatively small jury. And I gather your strategy was to talk to the American public and have them talk back to the senators who obviously care about their constituents. Was that your strategy? That, that was absolutely it. The senators needed to have their constituents understand uh, what was wrong with this impeachment process and why you can't go far, particularly after 14 hours of Hollywood production video of, uh, of, of you know, the whole the tragedy itself which really wasn't the issue. You know, we were supposed to spend 
two hours on jurisdiction. They, they never mentioned juris, jurisdiction and spent two hours on, you know, impassioned uh, video, um, you know, that incensed everybody, of course. It, 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 right. And we of course, they present the case they're... differently than I think we originally would go into. Their essential argument, the House manager's essential argument and the ACOU's essential argument is the one that was explicitly rejected by the framers of the Constitution when a proposal was introduced to have the British system, that is to allow the president to be removed from office like a civil servant based on maladministration. That was the word that was used. And the father of our Constitution, James Madison, rejected that. He said that would turn impeachment into allowing a president to serve only at the pleasure of the legislature. That's the British system. We rejected the British system and required the four criteria that we all know, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, obviously, you can't have treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors if the statements made are protected by the Constitution. That seems almost self-evident, that the First Amendment dominates and governs. The analogy I used to like to give is let's assume they they impeach somebody because he was a Muslim and the Constitution says no religious test shall ever be required. Could they say, oh, no, no, but that doesn't apply to impeachment. Only certain provisions of the Constitution apply to impeachment, not that. Obviously, the First Amendment governs impeachment. And I thought you did a very, very good job in doing that. But you say, David, that your firm uh, actually gave you some pushback when they heard the words legally frivolous. Uh, how did you deal with that? Well, I've been working with the firm uh, for 22 years. I have an excellent relationship with my partners. And I explained to them, and I sent them my brief that I had written on the First Amendment, which included, uh, you know, I went and found quotes from James Wilson, who was a founding father and spoke about how the Constitution, uh, you know, if you abide by the Constitution, you cannot be impeached. Uh, I went to the conventional or the Constitutional Convention and, and pulled quotes out of there, uh, some of which you just mentioned, Alan. Um, and I said, this is not frivolous, guys. We do this for a living. Uh, in fact, one of the, I've written a treatise on the wrongful use of civil proceedings uh, an element of, of which is that there is a legal, legally frivolous or factually frivolous component to the claim. I know what that means more than anybody, more than most. And my partners do too. And I said, this is not frivolous. What, what I feel like this is, uh, I actually cited your book now, The Cancel Culture. Uh, I, what I felt like before there was due process, before there was a airing of all these legal issues, there was an attempt by the media machine to squelch it, to make it seem as though these guys don't, they don't know what they're doing. Trump is trying to be canceled. They're trying to cancel Trump's lawyers. They're trying to cancel Trump's lawyers' legal arguments by characterizing them as legally frivolous without really analyzing the legal issues. And I will note well, that the, the law professor letter came out three days before we even filed our brief. So they didn't even see our legal arguments, but yet they were calling them legally frivolous. Well, I think they were intending to try to frighten you out of writing that brief and try to scare you and your law firm uh, and sending a message to bar associations. It read to me 
like intimidation. It's read to me, and that's why I wrote my op-ed the next day saying that as a professor of legal ethics for 25 years, let me assure the lawyers that what they're doing is not legally frivolous, and I would defend your right if you were called in front of any bar association, because I not only am an expert on the First Amendment, but legal ethics as well. And I know a frivolous argument when I see it. I've seen plenty of them. And the only frivolous argument I saw in this case is the House managers and the ACLU's argument that says that a president is like a government employee or a cabinet member. They use the analogy to a cabinet member, which the president can fire a cabinet member just by snapping his fingers. Doesn't like the way he looks, doesn't like the way he smells. Uh, A cabinet member can be fired at will. And that argument was utterly legally frivolous in every possible way, and yet it was put forward by the House managers and the American civilian. Shame on both of them. If I may, I'd like to, you know, in that proceeding, the First Amendment uh, uh, was abused, the Fifth Amendment was abused, and the Sixth Amendment was abused. But I really want to talk, as you're starting to now, about what happened, uh, the chilling effect of the Sixth Amendment. As, as the architect of the entire brief, not just the um, uh, helping out in the First Amendment, but in, in all of it and putting it together, uh, Mr. Castro, myself, and Mr. Schoen had our names uh, on, on the brief as the submitting uh, folks and um, have had uh, all of us, uh, the three of us, uh, have had uh, tremendous backlash during the trial, of course. Those 140 law professors um, really weren't writing to Mr. Uh, Heim at all. They were writing to us. And um, I have had a complaint already filed with a disciplinary board. Uh, I had backlash from a professional organization to which I uh, uh, sat in the executive committee of um, a small vocal group of folks. So the chilling effect on this client's uh, Sixth Amendment right uh, to counsel has um, uh, been drastic. And when you really talk about the cancel culture, the facts of this case are that after we argued the case, Um, from Senate Rule 23 through First Amendment due process and the actual defense of the words itself under the First Amendment as it's applied. Uh, As soon as that was done, people thought that we had certain positions which we do or do not have. It's it's irrelevant. But they... um, the, the, the right, your Hannity's and, and your, your other shows wanted us to come on. And, you know, we came on and we talk, really talked about what we talked about in the closing, that the left and the right need to come together and govern us more responsibly. But what happened was um, uh, Cooper, Maddow, uh, and uh, Cuomo, none of them wanted to hear from us about the case about what uh, what what the problems are down in Washington uh, and the media's well, role in it. What well, they as did, you know, as we speak this now, is important. this is really uh, Congress important. is having. This is really important. So what yeah. they what they're doing what they're doing is they're controlling the information that goes to politicians, constituents, the body public. They're controlling that information in so that when the politician is in Washington and needs to come from the left a little bit into the middle or from the right and a little bit into the middle, 
They can't because their, their constituents aren't informed. In fact, they're misinformed. They're misinformed mm -hmm. by a media on the left and a media on the right that requires division to get their viewership. And they, they, they misinform, they control the information, thereby mm -hmm. maintaining the division, not allowing the politicians. No, I, I agree. Possibly. Uh, and in fact, it's as we're speaking now. Situation. Yeah. As we're speaking now, the House is having committee hearings calling on the carpet only Fox and Newsmax and one other right wing uh, station, uh, but not CNN and not MSNBC talking about the flow of information. And it is, a, you know, you, you guys, lawyers, you're great lawyers, but you're too young to remember McCarthyism. I grew up in McCarthyism. I was a president of the student body at Brooklyn College when they were firing professors and when lawyers were being disbarred for representing communists. And uh, that's why it resonates with me so deeply. And it's so appalling to me that colleagues of mine like Larry Tribe would demean lawyers and attack lawyers who make these arguments. When I made my argument over a year ago, he refused to respond to them. He called them bonkers and nuts and crazy, uh, using all kinds of words like legally frivolous, but he never engaged. But, and you guys had the courage to fight back. And I stand behind you. And if any of you have any legal disciplinary problems or David Schoen or anybody else on the legal team, please call on me pro bono. I will be there to write affidavits, help you, because I strongly believe in the right of counsel and that professors shouldn't be discouraging lawyers from making legitimate arguments, winning arguments, arguments that ultimately prevailed in front of the United States uh, Senate. So let me ask you this question. You've had a lot of pushback, a lot of kick, I hope kicking. I uh, law students look at that list of 140 professors yeah. and make sure that they don't go to those schools uh, and certainly aren't taught <laughs> by those professors. There are a lot, of, a lot of schools, a lot of good schools there. But um, the pushback that you're getting, um, t tell us, um, if, if, if you had it to do over again, and if you knew what the response would be, would you have been willing to do this? Or do you think on balance this has caused you more harm than, than good or good to the country? How, how would you evaluate your experience now, either I of you? I think uh, the, my perspective is we did an enormous service to the Constitution. It's our absolute oath to do that. Uh, I would uh, do it again in a heartbeat. We defended the Constitution in a really strong, passionate way that the American people could understand, uh, not from the mouth of a law professor, but from the mouth of a guy who's really just a citizen. And I think that that had a really positive impact. We've, I've had a small group of vocal lawyers uh, who are probably haters to begin with. But overall, the reaction worldwide has been a tremendous uh, and tremendous in support. Yeah. Well, I, I suggest that you ought to write a book about it. You know, when I defended the Constitution the first time around and got a lot of pushback, including from friends and family, I wrote a book called Defending the Constitution because that was my role. That's what I did. Um, I wasn't talking about a particular person or a particular president. I was talking about the role of the presidency, the separation of powers, the checks and balances system. And I think it would be good to put your defense speeches into a book 
so that it will be remembered by history and your role would be uh, uh, remembered. Uh, uh, David, uh, what kind of an impact has it had on your life and your career? Well, I feel like on your show, Alan, right now, I'm outing myself because up until now, I was not on the brief. Um, I think that that's what uh, initially I preferred. I took a backseat role, even though I wrote the brief, where a lot, a, a part, a big part of it, and uh, had a big part in preparing the presentation. But you know, when I got back home and started to realize some of the backlash that Mike and David uh, and Bruce uh, were receiving, uh, not just public lay people backlash, but professional lawyers who were, you know, asking Mike to resign or suggesting that he should resign from his board member seat. Um, I felt compelled to come out in support of Mike and what we did. I know that it wasn't frivolous. I know that it was meritorious. Um, and, you know, I think the public has to be, understand a lawyer's role in our constitutional system. Uh, a lawyer's role is not to agree with uh, his or her client's uh, personal political beliefs. A lawyer's role is to objectively review the facts and apply the law as we understand it to be to those facts in an objective way. And that is what Mike did and that's what I did. Uh, and we yeah. did it in defense of the Constitution and I feel very proud of it. And, and really about eight or nine other lawyers all had eyes and were working on this brief uh, and, and the whole case presentation. We had a really strong team of people sure, that believed sure. in defending the Constitution, uh, and um, and they all did a really, really strong job, and they should all be proud of the work they did. No, Mike, Mike, I wonder what happened. How did you feel when one of the senators, uh, you'll remember who it was, I don't, one of the senators turned to the defense team and said, what is your personal opinion as to whether or not the election was actually stolen? Uh, was it you who was that asked was that question? question from the senator from Maryland who sits next to the uh, junior senator from Vermont, uh, Mr. Sanders? Mm -hmm. And uh, he had, had asked a very long question about election fraud theories. And um, then, in my opinion, did I believe um, that, uh, that, that they were true? And I said, well, you know, and I asked who asked the question because I hadn't had a question from the Democrats yet. And I really wanted to answer the question directly. So I asked who, and, um, and the gentleman said, I, I did. And I said, well, my opinion doesn't matter uh, in this. Remember, and yeah, was going to yeah, go into yeah. the First Amendment analysis again uh, and due process violations that were present. And, um, yeah, no. and Bernie, Bernie screams out, yes, your opinion matters. And let Senator Leahy had to hammer him down and say, you are not under the rules. You cannot interrupt an answer. Guy gets the answer. Well, you so he got hammered down. Uh, but, uh, but the idea of asking does, a lawyer my judgment what your doesn't personal matter. views we're, we're are. We're a vessel for the arguments um, that, that need to be made in defending the Constitution. Yeah, that's like asking a criminal defense lawyer, what's your personal view as to the innocence or guilt of your client? I mean, no criminal defense lawyer should ever be asked that question. I was once asked a question like that. Uh, I made a bail application uh, in front of the Second Circuit. 
And one of the judges on the panel said, what is your personal view as to whether he's a flight risk? And of course, I wanted to get bail for my client. So I really basically had to respond to that question. But it was an inappropriate question. You shouldn't ask lawyers their personal views on anything involving representation of a client. So uh, where do we go from here? Um, There's been a tremendous setback uh, in the Sixth Amendment. I think we are entering a world of McCarthyism. Um, Lawyers are being attacked for who they represent. Uh, You're fighting back. Where do we go from here? What's our next step? How do we persuade the American public that the only thing that distinguishes our legal system from the Chinese, the Iranian, the Russian, the Belarus, the Cuban legal system is that we have lawyers like you, brave lawyers, standing between the government and tyranny and our First Amendment rights. How do we educate the public about that? I, I think that more lawyers, and lawyers are key, because we are, in, in a sense, at least part of the guardians of the Constitution. And we yep. have, as a profession, we have to stand up for things that we have shared values in. And we should all have shared values in constitutional due process. We should all have shared values in defending the First Amendment, not about the merits of what somebody says, but about the right to say it. And those things have to be stated. We cannot have members of our profession. We can't eat our own. We can't have members of our profession attacking other members for representing a client and objectively applying the laws of due process and free speech. It's wrong. But how do we fight back? How, what do we do now to stop that? You know, lawyers think it's it's acceptable today to represent Nazis marching through Skokie. That's OK. But to represent Donald Trump, that's beyond the pale of acceptability. Uh, there's the Trump exception to the Constitution. They talked about the January exception. There is no January exception. As you know, president can be prosecuted for what he does in January. But there is a Trump exception. The ACLU created a Trump exception. The uh, House managers, the lawyers who were going after you, they're saying if it was anybody but Trump, we would be defending you. But because it's Trump, we're not going to defend you. Do you think that's going to end now with the end of the Trump presidency or is it going to continue and get worse? Well, I, I, I think it, I think he'll, you know, it's obvious people are continuing to to want to uh, prosecute him for all kinds of things. But to answer your question, what do we do going forward? Um, yeah. One, we continue doing what we've always been doing in the courtrooms every day, defending the Constitution uh, and holding to our principles. But we also now, I have to now, take what I've learned down there about how the system is broken, how the media plays a role in that, uh, and um, as much as uh, possible, educate the people as to what's going on. Try to put sunshine on a bright light on what the the, the mainstream uh, media is doing and how they're trying to con- how they control the information and 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 right. urge everybody uh, to come uh, with a spirit of compromise, moving from uh, closer to the middle to govern in all of our you know shared national priorities. Um, uh, and, and I, I don't need to go through those now, but they're no, very but important shared priorities. Let me ask you one final question before we have to c- close. Let me ask you a personal question. Um, I know right in my now, case, 
for example. Before this ever happened, I would never have thought of doing that. But it's important for me to uh, tell uh, the, the, everybody, as many that will listen, what I learned and, 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 and how dangerous it is and how it needs to, 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 to stop. And you have to call yeah. them out. You know, you have to call them out by their name that this is what they're well, doing. You have to. I, uh, and I agree. And one of the reasons I agreed to do this podcast, I'm a busy guy, is because on the Dirt Show, we get exactly what you're calling for, a movement toward the center, the defense of the right to counsel, nonpartisan defense of constitutionality. I want to end with a personal question to both of you. I know when I was in front of the Senate making the arguments like you made a year earlier, it affected my friendships. It affected some of my family relationships with me. Um, and it was very upsetting, obviously, because I've been doing the same thing for 65 years. I've done nothing different, but it's now on behalf of a very unpopular president. What impact has this had on your friendships, on your personal life, on your family lives, if you're prepared to share that with my audience? Well, I, I th I've had family members who I don't think understood what I do for a living, even though they, I'm a lawyer. And I had to explain to them that I'm a lawyer and we apply the law evenly to everybody in this country. And if we don't do that, it's a danger to all of us because it's a slippery slope. And uh, I, I, I had several conversations like that. And uh, I am doing this not just for Donald Trump, but for all of us. Um, and they mm -hmm. started mm -hmm. to understand that in, in, in my family. But good. It, Good. That conversation. Good. And for, for, for me, I, I mean, you know, it's kind of well known in our circles already. So didn't have much of an impact other than um, my uh, my daughter, Emma Rose, uh, has me in her phone under goat. And she said, uh -huh. she said yeah, now the whole world knows you're the goat. Ah, <laughs> uh -huh. goat has goat has multiple meanings. So uh, the 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 Brady goat, Tom greatest Brady of all time, yeah. right? Or the goat? Well, you guys are heroes. You stood up at a time when few lawyers were prepared to stand up. You took a lot of the brunt of the attack. Uh, you fought back. You did a great job in front of the United States Senate, and in the end, you won. And you won not only for President, former President Trump, you won for the Constitution, you won for the rule of law, you won for the right of people to have counsel, defend them. And so I just want to congratulate you on a job well done. I want to thank you for coming on uh, The Durst Show. You're invited back if you come back on any other issues relating to the First Amendment or the right to counsel. Uh, the Durst Show is always open to different points of view. We will have people calling in about your comments. Some will agree, some will disagree. But now at least you've heard from two of the most prominent lawyers who defended the Constitution on behalf of uh, Donald Trump. And I want to thank you very much for being part of this show and being part of American history. Thank you. You've heard now from two of the most important lawyers who defended the Constitution and defended Donald Trump against unconstitutional charges, uh, which resulted in a trial in the United States Senate. Now I want you to weigh in. Uh, what did you think? 
Did they make a good case? What did you think of their reaction? What did you think of the 140 law professors who tried to dissuade them from making a First Amendment argument? I want to hear from you on The Der Show. I want to hear your comments. I want to hear your questions. I want you to tell your friends to subscribe to The Der Show. I want more and more questions, more and more comments, more and more dialogue on The Der Show. An important part of The Der Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.